Christian, you accept the whole thing. But this one page defines a lot about what we think about the Bible. If we only have the Old Testament, we might feel a little bit different about the Bible. We might think, man, this is just an angry God with a bunch of rules, right? Or, or maybe there's just a lot of animal sacrifices, a whole lot of blood. We might think, man, this God endorses bloodshed and religious warfare. It seems like there's all judgment, no grace, all law and no gospel. We seem to like Jesus of the New Testament a whole lot better than the God we find in Lamentations and Leviticus and Judges. But church, I want us to look at it a little differently this morning. I want us to read the Bible like Paul. And that's the title of my sermon this morning. Reading the Bible like Paul. I want you to see the Old Testament with New Testament eyes. I want you to see the beauty of God's story written out from Genesis, unbroken to Revelation. I want you to see the beauty of God's story that he wrote down for us in Scripture. I want you to fall in love with the Old Testament as well as the New. So this morning, I want you to see that the Bible is, first of all, one single narrative. One single narrative. Second, I want you to see that the Bible is all about Jesus. And third, I want you to see that the Bible has been written down for the sake of our faith. So again, the Bible is one single narrative. That narrative is all about Jesus. And it's been recorded for us in God's word for the sake of our faith. Let me pray for us before we get going. Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you that we can read it in a language we understand. God, we thank you for the church. That's the context we get to read it in. God, I pray that this morning, eyes and hearts and ears would be open. God, I pray that it wouldn't be my words, but God, you would speak through me. It's in your name I pray. Amen. All right, so our text this morning is from 2 Timothy chapter 3. A little context before we get into it. It's written by Paul to Timothy. Paul, if you'll remember, is a church planter in the first century. He has planted churches all over Europe and Asia Minor. And as he's writing 2 Timothy, this is probably, most ex experts agree that 2 Timothy is the last book that he writes before his death. Timothy, who he writes to, is his spiritual son, his son in the faith, his disciple, someone who's traveled with him, who's experienced everything that Paul has. And so as he writes to Timothy, it's these final parting words. It's these words of a father who's walked alongside his son, giving him advice. You can just imagine a father on his deathbed and he looks at his son, pulls him close, and whispers in his ear one last final parting word to remember. Something so important. If this is all he remembers, remember this, right? So go ahead and turn there with, he, with me and pay attention. Listen carefully to Paul's final words to his spiritual son. We'll start in verse 10. This is 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17. You have, however... 
have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And we say together, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So what do I mean when I say one single narrative? Sure, it's contained in one leather cover. It's in one volume. But we know that there's 66 books. There's 35 to 40 authors. It was written over a period of 1,500 years. There's multiple genres. And we're very aware that there are two testaments, a great division right down the middle. So what is a narrative? If you'll remember, think back to maybe your eighth grade English class. A narrative simply has some basic parts. It's just a story, retelling of events. It has a main character. It has a setting. It has conflict and climax and probably has some sort of resolution. Now for larger stories, there might be something called a meta-narrative. Something that sums the whole thing up. It's the big picture. You zoom out and you have a meta-narrative. And under the meta-narrative, there are subplots, minor characters, conflict that comes and goes. For example, think about The Lord of the Rings with me, if you're familiar. There's uh, three books. It's a trilogy. But they all tell one story. And you might be able to sum it all up by just saying, Lord of the Rings is about a hobbit named Frodo has to destroy a ring, right? Or maybe Harry Potter. There's even seven books or eight movies. But you could maybe boil it down to, it's, it's about a boy named Harry who has to, you know, defeat evil Lord Voldemort. Or what about a TV show like The Office? There's hundreds of episodes, right? But maybe you could just boil that down to, it's just a love story between Jim and Pam, right? <laughs> maybe that's all it is. But all of this, there's a meta-narrative. Sure, there's books and episodes and chapters that all have their own story, that all tell a little bit of the piece of the story, but they help you understand the big picture, the meta-narrative. The Bible is no different. So what is the meta-narrative of the Bible? What's the big story? When you zoom out, what is this book all about? 
So I want to do a little exercise with you. Uh, I want you to think for yourself, what is the meta narrative of the Bible? What is it all about? If you had to summarize it, just take a minute. I'll give you just a minute. Maybe write it down. Maybe think of a sentence or a phrase in your head and try to summarize the whole Bible. I'll give you just a minute. You see, it's important that we understand what the Bible is all about. It helps us read Scripture. If we just pull out a single story, a single chapter, even just one book, do we really get the whole picture of what God is trying to teach us through this book? If we have a wrong understanding, if we approach Scripture incorrectly, if we impose upon it our own idea of what this book is about, we might misread it. For example, if you think that the whole Bible is just a bunch of rules, just a bunch of rules that you need to obey, you might not be real keen to open it up and read it. You might just want to forget what all those rules are about. Or if you think it's about just how to make you a better person, then every time you read a story, maybe you're reading yourself into it. Maybe you're the hero. Or maybe you think it's about how God's just going to make you comfortable. And you're just looking for the, the perfect happy ending to tie the bow on it and feel good about it. Or maybe you don't even see the meta narrative. Maybe the Old Testament seems so disconnected, it's just, you know, the bad prequel that you don't really want to read again. Well, let's just skip straight to Jesus, right? It doesn't feel very encouraging. God doesn't seem very loving in this Old Testament. I mean, the Psalms are great, right? But judges? Church, this is not how Paul read his Bible. This is not how Paul read the Old Testament. When he looked at the Old Testament, he saw something completely different. And I don't want you to read the Old Testament like that. I want you to read the Old Testament. Read your Bible like Paul did. I want you to see on every page, in every book, in every genre, that it's one story that God wrote, his meta narrative, simply summed up by what we call the gospel. The gospel is the meta narrative of the whole Bible. Now at church, we like to throw around the word gospel. We put it in front of everything, don't we? Gospel-centered preaching. We're a gospel-preaching church, gospel truth. That's all good. That's all right. But do we understand what this word really means? Do we know what the gospel is? The, the gospel is simply the good news about what God has done for us through his son, Jesus. The Bible's meta-narrative, the big story, is the gospel, which is the good news about what God has done for us through his son, Jesus. And as we read 2 Timothy, what Paul is writing to his spiritual son, he reminds us that all of Scripture points to this meta-narrative, points us to the gospel. All one story 
that points us to what God has done for us through his son. Which brings me to my second point this morning, that the Bible is all about Jesus. If the Bible is all about the gospel, then it has to be all about Jesus. So turn back again to 2 Timothy 3. Let's look a little bit more closely at verse 15. Let me read that one more time. This is 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. How from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, one thing we need to understand about the context of this passage, this is in the New Testament. The New Testament has not been completed yet. If you remember last week, Spencer was talking about the canonization of Scripture, how Scripture was compiled. How did we get all 66 books in one? We talked about how Peter considered some of Paul's writings to be Scripture, but that's not what we're talking about here, okay? So when, when Paul writes that Timothy was acquainted with the sacred writings, he's actually referring to the Old Testament. Now, if you have kids this summer who are in Camp Redstone, they're in Bible boot camp, you may notice that they are split up into three squads. There's squad Torah, squad Nevi'im, and squad Ketuvim. Okay, and these are the three major divisions of the Old Testament. They refer to the law, that's the Torah, the prophets, Nevi'im, and the writings, Ketuvim. Over time, biblical writers and other writers would simply summarize the Old Testament by referring to the last one, just the writings. So when we read in verse 15 here, that Timothy has been acquainted with the sacred writings, we can actually replace that with the Old Testament. So let me read this one more time and replace sacred writings with the words Old Testament. How from childhood you have been acquainted with the Old Testament, which is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now this should, should surprise us. We didn't read about Jesus until Matthew. What is he talking about here? How is the Old Testament able to make us wise for salvation by faith in Christ? He's clearly reading the Bible a little bit differently than maybe we have in the past. But Paul's not the only one who reads his Old Testament this way. Jesus, in fact, read the Old Testament in this same way. Back in Luke 24, Jesus is heading back from Jerusalem when he encounters two disciples on the road. They're headed to Emmaus, and these two disciples are talking about everything they've seen and experienced in the last few days. This is right after the resurrection, and so they're discussing Man, didn't you see Jesus? He died. There were rumors of his resurrection. Jesus comes along and says, what are you all talking about? And they say, are you the only one who hasn't heard? Like all of Jerusalem knows about this. And so they explain all of the events to Jesus himself, somehow not recognizing who he is. 
I'll pick up in verse 25 as Jesus responds to them. He says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now look again at this. He says that he used Moses, there's the Torah, the law, the prophets, and all of the scriptures, all of the writings. And there it is again. We see Jesus himself using the entire Old Testament to explain to these two disciples who literally lived the New Testament experience and missed it. They needed the Old Testament just to understand what had happened. How often do we use the Old Testament to share the gospel with somebody? How often do we think the gospel, that, well, that's, that's the New Testament. Do we apply the idea of gospel to the Old Testament as well as the New? Do you read your Bible like Paul does? Do you read the Old Testament like Jesus did? If I had time this morning, I could go through the entire Old Testament just pointing to different points along the road that pointed to Jesus, that foreshadowed his arrival. I could tell you of Genesis 3.15, the very first time when Jesus is predicted that someone from the seed of Eve would come along and crush the head of a serpent. If I had time, I would tell you of Genesis 12, when Abraham was promised that from his descendants, someone would be blessed. The whole nations would be blessed just from him. If I had time this morning, I would tell you of Joseph, Joseph, who was rejected by his brothers, thrown into a pit, left for dead, sold into slavery, but then rose up and ruled one of the greatest nations of his day. If I had time this morning, I would tell you of Exodus, of the time when all of the Israelites were preserved and went to the promised land, of the, the Passover lamb. The only difference between life and death was the blood of this lamb. If I had time, I would tell you of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and their faithfulness and of the fourth man walking in that furnace. If I had time this morning, I would tell you of the temple, even its design and pointing to the arrival of the Savior, the priest making sacrifice and by the blood being able to walk into the presence of God. I would tell you of conquering kings, of diligent prophets, of humble shepherds, of David, the shepherd king whose throne would last forever. All of the Old Testament points us to one person. All of the Old Testament shows us over and over again the faithlessness of God's people and the faithfulness of God. We see the gospel on every single page of the Old Testament. We hear the name of Jesus echo through every single page. If you study this book carefully and prayerfully, like Paul, we could see Jesus on every page of the Old Testament. Scripture is a book that's been crafted for us. It's been given to us. Just for the sake of us seeing Jesus at every turn. 
Which brings me to the third and final point, that Scripture is for the sake of our faith. It's not just for the Christian faith in general, but it's for your personal faith. This isn't just the Christian's book. God has given it to you personally. By his grace, he's preserved it for thousands of years. And it's ended up in your hands today, in your language. Scripture is for the sake of our faith. Now, the world today wants you to be skeptical of everything, doesn't it? They say, don't put your faith in things. Don't put your faith in the government. Don't put your faith in the internet, in the economy, in your bank account, in your parents, in religion. So what's left? What do we have left to put our faith in today? Yourself? That's what the world wants you to think. Put faith in yourself. Believe in yourself. Follow your heart. Trust your gut. I don't know about you, but I'm a mess. If I followed myself, if I trusted my gut, things would not turn out well. That is not the way I want to go. Faith in myself does not end up in the Father's arms. But we have to put our faith in something we have to believe in something. We have to trust in something or else we end up in despair. Now, there is one chapter in the Bible that talks a whole lot about faith. It's in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 defines faith right at the beginning. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. After defining faith, the author of Hebrews then goes and starts listing people who had faith. And what's interesting as you read this list, it's men and women from the Old Testament. It says that their faith is what caused them to be approved by God. It wasn't their obedience. It wasn't that they obeyed all the Ten Commandments perfectly. It wasn't that they were a good person. It was their faith. So what did they have faith in? What were they able to put their faith in? What gave them assurance for the things they hoped for? What were they convicted of that they could not see? As you go through Hebrews 11, it starts listing these Old Testament men and women goes through Abel and Abraham and Moses and Rahab. And then he just starts listing names that you might recognize from the Old Testament. He says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put form armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, 
Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had promised something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Just remember the context of 2 Timothy 3, as Paul is writing to Timothy, his spiritual son in the faith. He starts by talking about the persecutions, the pain he's endured, that Timothy no doubt will experience. In most of chapter 2, he's just describing the godlessness of his time. He talks about all of the things that will happen, all of the things that Timothy will have to endure. Our day and age is no different. If we truly believe what's in this book, if we are truly to be followers of Christ, we will face persecution. As we look around and see the godlessness of this day, you will have to have your faith in something strong. Just as all of those men and women from Hebrews 11 did to face all of those trials, just as Paul and Timothy did as they had to face all of those persecutions. We can't go through this life with a wishy-washy faith in ourselves. You have to put your faith in something. And God has given us his word for the sake of our faith. See, from the fall, we've been looking for something to put our faith in, something to hope in, someone to fix this mess that we see all around us, someone to bring justice, something, someone to make everything right. The story contained in the Bible is the only one that identifies exactly who we should put our faith in. And like any good story, as you start reading, you start discovering who this person is. We start in Genesis learning that it's going to be a, a human savior who has to be perfect. We learn that he's a descendant of Abraham from the line of Judah. He'll hold the throne of David, that he'll rule and reign forever. As we read the prophets, we learn that he will have to suffer and die and rise again victorious, restoring the glory of God's people and our ability to live in the presence of God. Everyone in Hebrews 11 had this faith in the Messiah. They didn't even see the, the climax of the story. They didn't get to experience the resolution in their lifetime, but they knew the end of the story. They were looking for the Messiah. They had faith that he would actually come. Church, I want you to read the Old Testament like Paul does. I want you to see just like the author of Hebrews does. In Hebrews chapter 12, right after this phenomenal list of the heroes of our faith, He starts the chapter like this. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, since we have the Old Testament and all of these stories, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Church, we have the whole scripture. We have the end of the story. We know how it ends. We are so privileged to live on this side of the incarnation of Christ. We have the Gospels, which tell the birth, death, resurrection, the ministry, the preaching, and explain the character of Christ. We have the Acts of the Apostles, the proclamation of the Gospel, and the growth of the church. We have the Epistles, where the Apostles teach us and explain to us how the church should function, how we're to pursue Christ. And we have Revelation, the grand and mysterious epilogue of the Bible, getting glimpses of Christ's final return and reign. Alistair Begg simply puts it like this, we find Christ in all of the scriptures. In the Old Testament, he is predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. In Acts, he is preached. In the epistles, he is explained. And in Revelation, he is expected. Reading the Bible like Paul, he says that our faith will end up in one place, and that is in the Messiah, in Christ Jesus. He is the main character of the Bible. He is the protagonist. He is the one that we look to throughout all of Scripture to make things right. As you study all of God's Word, you start to get to know who He is. You find how powerful, how holy, how kind, how just, how perfect and forgiving our Savior really is. And you start to see how the whole Bible points us to the gospel of Jesus, about what God has done for us through his Son. So this morning, I want you to give the Bible a chance. I want you to give the Old Testament a chance. And I want you to look for Jesus everywhere. Let's think about Paul and his story of conversion. If you'll remember, he's walking along the road to Damascus, attempting to persecute the church. He was trained by one of the best Old Testament scholars of his day, and yet he didn't see Jesus. So miraculously, Christ comes on the road and reveals himself to Paul. So this morning, as we study the Old Testament, as we study our Bible, as we look for Jesus, I want you to pray that Christ would encounter you in Scripture like he encountered Paul on the road. I want you to pray that Christ would send people 
like Ananias, who came alongside Paul and helped him remember what the Old Testament is all about, help him discover who Jesus is. So read scripture in community. Read scripture with others around you. We have this church. We have this body that all points us to who Jesus is. Pray that the scales would fall off your eyes as you read difficult passages. Pray that God would help you see him more clearly. And then finally, I pray that you would go in faith after reading scripture, just like Paul did. So confident in what he understood about who Jesus was from the Old Testament that he would risk his life and ultimately lose it just to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Let God's word move in you to shape you and change you. So how do we see Jesus in the Old Testament? And I'll conclude with this. First is prayer. Reading your Bible is not simply an academic act. It's a spiritual endeavor. Pray that God would work through his spirit to open your eyes. The second is get to know Jesus where he is most easily found in the Gospels. We get to know exactly who he is, the words that he said, how he interacted with people. Get to know Jesus in the New Testament and then look back and find him in the Old. There are over 250 direct quotations of the Old Testament in the New. And if you start counting all the indirect quotes and all the references to the Old Testament, you'll find that there are actually over a thousand references. All of the Bible points us to Jesus. It's all one story about him. And lastly, I would ask you to read the whole Bible with gospel-filtered eyes. Remember that the gospel is the good news about what God has done for us through his son. So read the whole Bible with that in mind. This morning, on your tables in front of you, you have the elements of communion. So as we consider the gospel, consider the good news of what Christ has done for us, remember him sitting around a table with his best friends the last night that they could have a meal together celebrating the Passover. And he takes the cup, this cup of celebration, and he says, this is my blood. You'll remember the Passover, celebrated because of the exodus of God's people. This would have reminded them of not only the joy of coming out of slavery, but also the blood of the lamb that was sacrificed, that kept them safe. So this is the blood of Christ, as Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us and his blood shed for us. And then there's the bread. There's a lot of references to bread in the Old Testament, but most significantly, I think, is the manna that God provided to preserve his people. That God sent bread from heaven just to keep his people alive, that they were nourished by it. The very bread of life. And so sitting around the table with his friends, Christ said, this is my body broken for you. So take these elements this morning if you are a follower and believer of Jesus, remembering in your hearts 
what he has done for you. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for all of the stories, all of the songs, all of the history. God, that there are so many ways that we can know you through it. God, that we can just read it and be nourished by you. God, I pray this morning that we would be so in love with you because of your word. God, that we would desire to know you more and more, and because of that, that we would study your word carefully and prayerfully. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that everything you've done points us to him. And it's in his name I pray.